Hi, welcome to the Givergy podcast season, the secret guide to fundraising. I'm Ben, Givergy COO. As a team of fundraising experts, we help clients across the world raise as much money as possible. This is possible thanks to our award-winning platform and team knowledge, which provide the tools to raise more online and at events. We also offer a range of features with auction items and hosts being just two of the popular tools nonprofits use to raise big money. We're excited to share our fundraising best practices, tips and tricks through this medium. So sit back and enjoy the show. In today's episode, be prepared for some serious Southern charm as we are joined by Chuck Mutz, who is a leading auctioneer and fundraising host in Louisiana, USA. Representing his company, Black Tie Auction, Chuck is a successful and charismatic auctioneer who uses his experience in the Deep South to help nonprofits raise more funds. So join us on this podcast episode to learn how Chuck engages guests creatively at fundraising events. We'll delve into his personal success stories and discuss the opportunities for fundraisers to make a greater impact. So Chuck, how are you doing? Oh, good morning, sir. If I was any better, I'd be franchised. <laughs> that was a great day here in New Orleans. Well, actually, I'll start, I'll start with that. How is the weather in New Orleans? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> no, but I was saying, is it, is it hot where you are? Oh, good God. Yeah. I broke out in a sweat this morning walking from the front door to the car. I've been to see you twice, and every time I'm, I've been amazed by how, how hot it is there. And everyone's yeah. just used to it walking around like, yeah, that's fine. Then you get into the air conditioning and you're like, oh. <laughs> yes. Can you imagine the first guy that was selling air conditioners in New Orleans? Oh, God, off the shelf. This, this, this feels like your logging story that you told me about. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Chuck, for this episode, obviously, it's all everything fundraising. And I know you support lots and lots of nonprofits. But let's start at the beginning. How did you even get into the sector? It's a interesting story. I started as an auctioneer when I was 18 due to my dad needing four auctioneers on the company to get the state of Louisiana contract. So I started as an auctioneer at the ripe young age of 18. Fast forward several years where we would do minor things, you know, the, the Cub Scouts or the church, or small things. It wasn't until right after Katrina where a friend of mine knew that I was an auctioneer and asked to help with the American Cancer Society's Bells and Bows Ball. It was so much fun and we raised so much extra money and the feedback was so positive. And it was also helping me in my primary job, which at the time was telecommunications. And I found that every time I would get up on stage and call bids for a nonprofit organization, my traditional sales job would spike. So I would let other people know, hey, if you need an auctioneer, give me a table so I can invite clients and friends. And here we go. It wasn't until seven years ago when Don Marie Castanos out of California flew into New Orleans for the Emerald Lagasse event. We raised one and a half million dollars in three hours. She pulled me aside and said, Chuck, I don't know what you do for a living. I don't care, but you need to quit your day job and do this with me. So five years ago, I actually quit my job and started black tie auctions. I got my benefit auctioneer specialist certification and here we are. 
What a journey. And I'm guessing you're still loving it. Oh, it, it was the second best decision I have ever made in my life. As a newlywed, the best decision was marrying Deanna. Of course, of course. And, you know, this is an international podcast as well. So you mentioned there about being licensed in the state of Louisiana. What does that mean? Because I think, you know, most countries, a lot of auctioneers or fundraising hosts don't necessarily need a license. Yes. In several states in the U.S., you must be licensed to be compensated to call bids. In Louisiana, you not only have to be licensed, bonded, and insured, but in certain cities, such as Baton Rouge, you also must be licensed in the city in order to call bids and be compensated. Nonprofit groups, it's, uh, you know, the licensing allows for an executive director who is being paid by the organization, that's their job to call the bids, or a celebrity volunteer or a board member who wants to pay to be the auctioneer. So as an example, there was a weatherman in Baton Rouge who was not licensed, who was being paid to be the MC. Their auctioneer did not show up. So the weatherman took the stage and called the bids. When they were audited, they found out that the weatherman was compensated to be there, but was not a licensed auctioneer. And he was actually fined $500 per item. And there were 10 items. Several other states like Mississippi, Florida, Texas, all require licensed auctioneers to call bids. States like California, all you need to do is have a bond. So it varies from state to state, from county or parish, and by the city. So if you're going to be conducting a live auction, you need to make sure you check with the local municipalities to make sure that everything is as it should be as far as the letter of the law is concerned. Yeah, that's, that's really, really, really good advice. Like I said, because for a lot of countries, that's not necessarily a thing. So, you know, especially for our American clients, because we operate all across America, it's, that's, some, yep. that's some really, really good advice. So black tie auctions. So you went on your journey, you know, you, you decided to take that enormous leap into the sector and then open your own business. So tell us a little bit about black tie auctions. What does it do? What areas do you cover? Well, we love what we do and it shows when we get on stage. Uh, primarily, we are benefit auctioneers. My mother, my father, my brother, my sister-in-law, my niece, and I are all auctioneers. So as you can imagine, family conversations last about 12 seconds. We started off doing just the live auctions. Then we found this platform based in London, who was a phenomenal partner, and we started adding the silent auction piece. As we realized that people were reaching out to these several different consignment companies, we pulled that into our service offerings. And then we found that we were getting good money from some of the big donors, but there was a lot of $20 donors in the crowd that we weren't capturing. And as I was getting certified in the benefit auctioneer specialist realm, one of my other BAS auctioneers, Jeffrey, took a uh, clue from the price is right and built a punch wall. So we added that. So in Louisiana, we're the only full service, comprehensive benefit auctioneer specialist company that can provide the back end software, which of course is Givergy, the front end piece, which is the live auction services, the paddle raise, the brand ambassadors, the consignment items for those that want local New Orleans based consignment items from Becky Fallis and Terrence Osborne and Symmetry and Ron Jewelers, 
So we provide a one-stop shop that encompasses everything, which also eliminates the, oh, you need to call the other company. That's their issue. We handle it all for our clients. Get it. It's all, it's all encompassing. And do you only support people in Louisiana? No, uh, we do events several states now. Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, Florida are our central hub. We are working with an organization in Atlanta right now. As soon as they pull the trigger, we'll get licensed in Georgia. But we've also done events in Baltimore. We've done events in California, Chicago, and Phoenix. So we're licensed in all of those states to make sure that we can provide that all-encompassing experience for our clients. Brilliant. Well, a great service that you offer, and we're, we're very proud to be one of your partners. So let's jump into, you know, Southern-style fundraising, because I've, I've experienced it a little, and it always amazes me how, how different it is. So, yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about your fundraising style. Can you tell me a little bit more about the work that you do and how you develop this unique style to gain big donations? It's a lot of energy. High energy, a lot of fun. We use a lot of humor in what we do. The phrase that I use is we want our donors and guests to feel like the team that they love. And of course, down here in New Orleans, it's the New Orleans Saints. We want to make everybody in the room feel like the Saints are up by two touchdowns. We've got the ball and the two minute warning just blew. So it's that feeling of euphoria. We know that we're going to win. And everybody is happy, upbeat, and laughing. And, you know, just like everybody else, laughter creates that euphoric experience. And when people are feeling great, they give way more money than when they're not. Think about when you were a kid and you wanted 20 bucks from your mom and dad. If they were feeling great, you got that 20 bucks to go see the movie. If they were not happy and you asked for that 20 bucks, you got to go clean your room. We want to make sure that you get that 20 bucks. Love that. What kind of things are you doing though in, in the room? What kind of energy are you bringing to be able to get them to feel that way? Well, if you've ever watched a pitch man, and I hate to use the term pitch man, but hey, there it is. We bring that energy. So people feel the excitement. I also make sure that every client that I work with, I believe in their cause. So my mother is breast cancer survivor. My dad passed of a massive heart attack. So those two organizations... I am extraordinarily passionate about that cause. So when I'm calling bids, I'm reaching out to people. And if I know somebody or I know the company they work for, as they bid, I will give them a little shout out, which makes them feel very happy. It also sends that ripple effect that if Bob with ABC company is bidding, any of Bob's competition, they need to get on the stick and bid as well because if I'm mentioning Bob's company, now Sue wants her company name mentioned. Also, I bring in professional ringmen, which are floor auctioneers. Those are the guys that are in the crowd. And as somebody raises their paddle, they get that. Yeah. So as I'm calling bids, what about a thousand? What about two? What about three? My ringmen are in the crowd going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that excitement definitely ripples in the crowd. So if you've had somebody at a sports game sitting right behind you and they score and they cheer real loud, you're going to start cheering too. It's just the way our minds work. So as we get everybody excited and we get that energy pumped up, we get the volume set, that's what makes 
a really good, fun fundraising event for us. Well, it, it, it feels like, well, first of all, it sounds extremely exciting to go to one of those events. A very, I must say, very different to, to British style fundraising. But it sounds like you're doing a lot of research. You know, you're kind of, you, you knowing what companies are in the room. And, and would you say that's something that is really important when bringing a fundraising host in to know that level of information? Oh, absolutely. A lot of people have thought that an auctioneer just shows up, grabs the script, calls bids and leaps. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. A good benefit auctioneer specialist knows who is in the crowd. They've done the research on the background, so they know, okay, these are the people on the board. These are the vendors of the organization, and these are the supporting, I don't want to say supporting cast, but I need to know who's in the room. Because with a traditional auction, if I put a piece of artwork that has a value of $5,000 on display, we're going to get five, maybe six, love to get 7,000 for it because that's the retail perceived value of that piece of artwork. When we do the Super Boil, which is we bring in the the Saints rookies and we teach them what crawfish is all about. By the way, yeah, we'll get you down here for crawfish boil. We sold a painting or excuse me, a print that had a $500 value for $3,100 because it was signed by the rookies. And we knew that the owner of the facility we were in was a diehard Saints fan. And we also knew that she collected Terrence Osborne's art. So you've got that perfect combination of all of those wants. And we were raising money for scholarships. So it wasn't the idea that we were selling the piece of art. We were giving the people in the room the opportunity to make a pledge for the organization. And that's the difference between traditional auctions and benefit events. Also, if we know that there's two competing companies or two competing law firms in the room, not to sound advantageous, but a shark can smell blood and water. And we sold a George Rodriguez print for almost $50,000 because attorney A did not want attorney B to get the bid. Were they men? on the table bidding against each other. I was calling them by name because I knew that they were both competing law firms. And I used that information to our advantage. And again, they bid that high because they didn't want the other law firm and the school benefited because it was for scholarships. So because of that extraordinarily high bid, 10 students were awarded $5,000 scholarships. So everybody wins. It's brilliant. And I think it's, um, you know, there's elements of that that we see all across the world, especially the competitiveness. But I was asking about were they male? Because the amount of times that we we see extreme competitive bidding between especially corporates. Oh, in trouble. You're looking like that's a, 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 a man against another man with male bravado going, I'm, I am going to outbid you. Yeah, believe it or not, the law firm owners were both men, but it was the lady in the crowd that was doing the bidding for one of the firms. Oh, yes. Love that. Competitiveness everywhere. Oh, yes. So this kind of leads on to the next question, which is, you know, Givigi operates in in five countries around the world. So we get to see lots and lots of different types of fundraising. But in America, I would say it's one of our most unique regions because it is like the fundraising mecca, as I call it. 
but also, you know, for Southern style Creole fundraising, I know it's different because you said things to me about some names like punch walls and things like that I've never heard of. Can you give our audience some examples of what you think is different to what, what is probably the rest of America? In Louisiana, especially the New Orleans area, it is more about who you know than what you know. There's a way that we instantly tell if somebody is local to New Orleans or if they are, uh, we call them transplants, people that move to the New Orleans area, is we ask folks, where'd you go to school? So, Ben, where'd you go to school? I went to school in Staffordshire. Okay. And what was the name of your, the school you went to? Um, Shellfield. Shellfield Community School. Okay. Is that a uh, high school or is that a college? Um, it would be classed as a high school. Okay. In New Orleans, if you tell us your college, we know that you're not from here. So when we asked that question, you would have said, you know, the, the, yeah. the name of your school, high school. We would then instantly assume that you are a New Orleans born and bred person. So if somebody says, oh, I went to Yale or Harvard, we instantly know that they are not from New Orleans. If they say they went to Rummel, Jesuit or Bonneville, then we know those are all local high schools. You're one of us here in New Orleans. So that's how we know if you're from here or not. There's a lot of Southern charm. You have the power of six everywhere else in New Orleans. It's the power of two. So we can figure out somebody that you know by asking two other people versus the uh, six people that you would have to know. Uh, Jason, uh, I'm trying to think the gentleman's last name. There was a commercial about trying to say, you know, this is who I am. I think it was a Visa commercial where they would say, this is Bob, who knows Sue, who knows Cliff, who knows Dave, who knows you. Here in New Orleans, <laughs> you can find two people and you'll be connected. <laughs> I love that. I mentioned a moment ago as well, that that kind of fundraising idea, which I feel like you may have, have pioneered, which is, is that punch wall? Can you tell our audience a little bit about how that works? It's It's really simple. We have this huge wall that has four inch tubes we cover the tubes with crepe paper and we put prizes valued from, well, it all depends on what you want to charge for the wall, anywhere from 20 to $100. People make a donation, they punch the wall, and whatever tube they punch through, the prize is actually in the wall. So if it's a gift certificate to a local restaurant or a service provider, or there's a slip for a basket or a bottle of wine, think of the prices right where you've got the wall with all the tubes covered with tissue paper, and you're basically punching through that tissue to pull the prize out. We've uh, used it for five to six years. It generates anywhere from $2,000 to $6,000 for the organization. We've got a lot of folks here in New Orleans that love it so much because it's marketing for the restaurants that work with us. It's a donation for them. And the AMA, the American Marketing Association, says that a $25 gift card gets a 300% return on investment to the restauranteur that donates it. So at the higher end events, we charge $100 per tube and we make sure that the prizes in the tubes are worth 100 or above. Uh, for the smaller high schools or the elementary schools, even we have one for the kids where we charge five bucks and they get a little, we call them plush appeal trinkets. It's what we throw from the Mardi Gras floats. But the kids don't care. 
They love it. It costs us 72 cents each. We charge the kids five bucks to punch and we have sold the kids wall out at almost every event where we've had family-centric events. It's such a good idea. And I think what's wonderful about it as well is that, you know, you're walking, I'm assuming it's at the entrance to the kind of the event. It's getting you in this real like fun party, like gaming kind of way before you even start the auction or the silent auction, the donation. You're already in this, wow, I've just won. You know, like you said, you put a hundred in, you got a hundred out. The restaurant's really happy. The charity's really happy. And you've already made a good few thousand dollars before you've even started going crazy with the fundraising. Yep. It is a lot of fun. It's got lights. It's got the video screen. So it shows all the vendors that are in it and a a little clip of people actually punching the wall and pulling prizes out. So, and it's also part of the decorations of the event, but instead of having to spend money on decorations, it's a piece of decoration that actually generates money for the organization. It's brilliant. Right. You're going to have to send me this video. I, I, yeah, I've always heard about it from you and I've never actually seen it. So um, I, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Just Google Punchwall Fun Black Tie Auctions and it'll be the top thing on your Google search. Can't wait. I'm going to do it after this podcast. So do you think, you know, from, you know, there's, there's so many different ways that, that I know you fundraise and especially Southern Star, but do you think there are any elements that could be bought across the pond or even into Canada You know, is there any tips that you think could actually work in other parts of the world from the skills that you've learned? Well, we do events all over the place. It's mainly the high energy and making people feel at home and welcome. When you call people by name, that really warms their heart. And that's that kind of goes back into the research. You need to know who's in the room. The auctioneer or the people that are at the event, they need to spend time on LinkedIn to study the people that are going to be at the event. You've got to know your audience. If you don't know your audience, you don't know what type of personality style they've got, you're you're, you're at a disadvantage. So before this podcast, you and I have chatted, I've already looked at your disc profile. I know what type of person you are. You are a numbers-driven guy, but you love to make people happy, which is kind of a unicorn because most CFOs are looking at the bottom line. So when I'm doing my event and I know that Bob, who's a uh, task oriented person, but he's open to change, I know how to address Bob. And when I'm looking at Susie, who's the sales leader for her organization and makes a gazillion dollars. I know that by calling her name out and saying, oh, this is going to look great on your wall at your office. Those are what people want to hear when they're at the event. So if you cater to their needs, you got them. When you're talking to that accountant person that, you know, very fixed on those numbers, when you let them know, Mr. Accountant, your pledge is going to fund five scholarships for your organization, or your pledge is going to fund this type of research for your cause, those speak to those folks. I don't really think it's a Southern thing, but if it is, it's what I bring to other areas. And that's why when I did the Baltimore event a couple of months ago, that's why I had two other organizations reach out to us before we even left to come back home asking us to do their event. Brilliant. I would just say, you know, listen to what you just said there. There's a lot of personalization towards the donor and and reacting to 
the, the, the different donor type, their what they their job they do, or even their personality. Do you find that you adjust yourself to the type of event or audience? So, for example, if you're doing a really super high end event that might be, you know, not being negative, a little bit stuffy, to something that's more like community style, do you change the way you present yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. I cannot walk into a Cub Scout bake sale with the same mindset that I would walk into the Carnival Division, where we know what type and what pocketbook the people have. Because if you walk into, and I, I'm, I'm going to use white collar and blue collar. If you walk into a blue collar crowd and treat them like a white collar client, you're going to lose credibility. Likewise, when I'm at the white collar events, you know, the, the million dollar events, my contract says that I am sitting up front with the events MC because everybody in that room needs to look and see me sitting at the premier table and know that I am their equal because if they don't look at me as their equal, then I'm not going to be able to command the crowd the way I need to. And an auctioneer, a good auctioneer can command a crowd without hesitation or fail. When I'm doing the blue collar, we're going to talk about beer. When I'm doing white collar, we're going to talk about wine and champagne. And that's that's how I roll, folks. <laughs> I like that. And, and, and the thing I really focus on at the moment is, you know, a, a fund, it's got so many names around the world, fund a need, a pledge event, a donation moment. And the reason I'm asking about this is because, you know, we as a company have been really trying to empower fundraisers to say, you just need to ask because so many of the events that we support, they don't actually do donation moments. They know, I think else, but they don't ask for direct funds. And I know in America, I find it's something that most fundraisers are so good at, but you know, can you give any advice on, you know, do, first of all, do you think people should ask and, and kind of maybe what your advice is on the best way to do a funder need or donation moment? Okay. Hang on a second. I'm going to put on a, uh, a fundraiser hat. Good morning or good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We have a lot of second high bidders in the crowd. We do not want you going home burdened with all of that cash in your pocket that you are going to spend on that trip. So, Ben. Here's your opportunity to make a 100% tax-deductible donation to the organization of your choosing. A $5,000 pledge will cover the cost of, and then we go into the details of what that $5,000 would do for the organization. So let's say we've had a phenomenal auction and we've raised $100,000 and we've got 400 people in the crowd. Now, 400 people in the crowd and we sold 10 items. That means we've got 390 people that have not made a huge pledge or donation other than sponsorships, right? Is my math right? Okay. So the fund to need or the paddle raise or the, the call to heart, whatever we want to call it, that is the opportunity to get a boatload of cash from the crowd. As an example, we did it for the New Orleans mission the first time ever. They never wanted to do it. And I kept saying, we need to do it. I got pushback after pushback. Finally, I told the guys, if I don't raise 20,000 additional dollars, don't pay me. 
Wow. Now, I got that same look that you're giving me right now. Really? If I if you're saying that if we do this and we do it your way, we'll get okay. So we did. We end up getting fifty grand. I should have put in a clause that I get a bonus, but I didn't. When I, I get, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've added that into my my contract now. So as I have introduced the paddle raise to some of my larger clients, they have doubled and even tripled how much we've gotten from the gala when it comes to the live auction portion. Now. Again, you must be a licensed fundraising professional in most states to do a paddle raise. Louisiana, Mississippi are two of them that I know that you actually must be licensed to solicit a donation. When we were talking about this with the Auctioneers Association, one of the fundraising professionals said, well, yes, when you're auctioning an item, you're auctioning that item. When you're doing a paddle raise, what are you selling? And that was the deciding factor. So again, I am a licensed fundraising professional in several states, as well as a licensed auctioneer. So again, going back to that earlier conversation, make sure that you're following the local municipalities' rules and laws for fundraising events. But I'll put it to you like this. When we did it for Archbishop Rommel, which is a local high school here in New Orleans, the first year we did the paddle raise, we generated 50,000 bucks. Last year, we generated $125,000 during the paddle raise. Phenomenal. I mean, if you think about the your first example of the fundraising team, they were like, no, no, Chuck Adelic is right to ask. And, you know, you put your money on it and said, well, if I don't at least have $20,000 of those in additional, you know, donation fundraising, you've got 50000 They just must have been blown away and also thinking, God, I wish we'd have done it for the last five years. Oh, yes. Their faces were priceless when I walked up and said, so how'd we do? I mean, they were giddy. It was like watching children uh, during Christmas time. So, uh, and I loved it. Um, you know, and that's, that's one of my favorite parts of the fundraiser is once we have hit their goal, my heart starts to sing. And when I'm visiting with folks, I say, okay, what's your minimum goal? What's your desired goal? And what's your dream goal? And when we hit those dream goals during the event, oh man, uh, it puts a smile on my face. My heart sings because, I mean, I look, I do the happy dance and knowing that everybody's excited and happy. The donors are excited because we've hit that dream goal. The organizers are happy. And of course, you know, my team and I are, are ecstatic because that's usually when we get invited to come back again the following year. Bear. And have you found with the way that you do, a, you know, a donation moment, do you ever achieve 100% donor engagement? Not yet. Uh, it's one of those frustrating things that we know that we're going to get 20% of the crowd is going to spend big money. That's why we brought in the donor enhancers, you know, the punch wall, the heads or tails, the 50-50 and the wine raffle, because we want to try to get everybody in the room to spend at least a hundred bucks. It's, it's, we've gotten 90% of donor participation at times. But, you know, for, for me, all the tracking that we've done, it, we've, we've not hit 100% yet. Yet. Yet, yes. And I think even achieving 90%, like you're saying, you know, we're really fortunate because we have access to all of this data in terms of high-level stats. And, you know, the average pre-pandemic was 20% of the room would give, sometimes less than, sometimes less than 10% when we first started out. 
But we found with funder needs and donation members recently, especially with people using Glowup and all these tactics you're saying, we are seeing more and more events achieve 50, 60, 70, and the 90% ones are phenomenal. So, But when you get to the 100% one, you have to let me know because I think you will get there. Yeah. And one of the things I love about the Givergy platform is it tracks every dollar spent by every donor. So at the end of the event, we pull those reports and we see who spent money on what, how much, the top table. So when we're doing celebrity waiter type competitions, we don't have to sit and wait to see who won. We know within seconds of closing the event who has spent the most money. Absolutely. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about trying to ensure that you are maximizing every single opportunity. And, you know, a feature that we that we keep pushing, and, and I think if used right, can be so effective, which is turning the losing bids into donations. And I saw it recently where the fundraising host actually announced it and was like, so, you know, the auction is closed and thank you everyone, blah, 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 blah. But then was like, for those who didn't win, you're about to receive a text message. You know, if you could just donate as any of that donation and then you saw such a high number of people give and mm-hmm. I'm like, please everyone start using these features because they, they're there to help you raise more. Oh, oh, when Givergy added the recurring donation, oh, yeah. that has significantly helped because when we're doing the, the fund to need, when we get to the last tier, I'll look at the crowd and say, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our live auction portion of this evening. If there was a denomination that we did not say, or if you would like to donate $10 a month or more, we're sending a link to your phone. So we do it very similar to what you just said. Yeah. It has created tremendous additional, uh, we call them the last gasp pledge, tremendous revenue. It's so good to hear. Yeah. And it's long lasting, isn't it? It's giving the nonprofit and the, the fundraising the opportunity to, first of all, I have been quite often be surprised by who would sign up to regular giving and have that opportunity to be able to connect with them, thank them, and then hopefully expand that, you know, throughout the year and, and, and it goes somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. $50 a month from 50 folks. That's $2,500 a month in recurring revenue. And that, that, that could be a scholarship or somebody's salary. Absolutely. And do you believe as well, Chuck, that, and um, the impact made at live fundraising events influences the wider fundraising efforts throughout the year for, for nonprofits. Oh, yes. Um, I have told several of the clients that I work with that the live fundraising event is also part of their donor cultivation process. So if you have a sponsor and you've invited 10 of your friends to join you, at the event, those 10 people that you've invited, we now have their name, address, phone number, et cetera. So that's going to give us a wider donor base to reach out to for other events throughout the year. So if we're going to have something that's a little bit more scaled down, we now have so many more people that we can reach out to and invite to attend this event. Did that answer the question? Is what I think I went off on a tangent, didn't I? You, you did a little bit, but it's 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 totally fine. But it does it it answers a little bit towards my next question as well because you know we went through a pandemic, we went virtual crazy. But yep. you know, sure that you also had to pivot given your business. Do you think now that we've learned so much, is there any of the live event excitement that we can bring into digital fundraising? It's a dual edged sword. 
you can feel the excitement watching a football game on TV. But if you got people in the room with you, that excitement grows. The We're doing hybrid events now that everybody's familiar with Zoom and Teams and things of that nature, where five years ago, when I would tell people, okay, we're going to have our web-based training via Zoom, they would go, what's that? So the pandemic has made it so much more accepted to have the hybrid. We have had several times where people online have outbid the people in the room. And when I'm doing the hybrid events, I've got a pretty big TV sitting to the left of the stage so I can see some of the people that are bidding online. And of course, I've got one of my ringmen watching the screen just in case I'm trying to get somebody in the room to bid again and somebody on the Zoom call raises their hand. And we do tell the folks, if you're bidding online, you've got to type it in the chat or your camera must be on so we can see you raising your hand. So some of that excitement can be brought, but you've still got to have some excitement in the room to make sure that that excitement bleeds over onto the online crowd. Yeah, into the hybrid side. And that's really good advice because the, the the hybrid is still a question we are being asked is, you know, do you think we should? And and we're still, we're now at that point where like, it's, it is a, it's also quite a lot of pressure to make it hybrid and then make that, those two audiences connect and kind of bring them together and then maintain exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I think a lot of, a lot of fundraisers are now leading so actually not away from them, but maybe keeping them separate as in doing virtual and a live fundraiser, but a separate rather than always bringing them together. Would you agree it's quite stressful to do that? It, it is because you're now relying on video streaming versus just the text messages going on. I would feel that if Givergy added the live streaming component to the homepage for the live auction, it would be something that we would probably incorporate into probably about 20% of our events. Because uh, right now, that's what we see. About 20% of our events are asking for the hybrid possibility. Most of them are schools that have grandma and grandpa in Florida. So grandma and grandpa still want to bid on little Johnny's science project or class project. and. That was an example of one of the online bidders that outbid the people in the room. So there is a market for it. Well, that's that's really, really good to know. And I will speak to our product team because we're all ways around that as well. So um, yeah, I'll come, I'll come back on that point. So I'm going to finish with, because we're nearly out of time, one last question. So if you could give our fundraisers one final piece of advice, because you have given lots and lots of advice, which is brilliant. But one piece of advice that could help increase in-room audience to donate, is there anything more that you could give as advice? Know the audience. That is the biggest piece of advice that I could give anyone. Know your audience, because if you know who is in the room, why they are in the room, then you can cater your event to those large and small donors, knowing what those people like. So if we have a CFO of a huge online platform and we know that he loves going fast, getting two passes to NASCAR with a ride along with one of the drivers, that's going to be an auction item that he or she 
would absolutely foam at the mouth for. If you've got another donor who loves jewelry, make sure that you've got those items up for bid and then make sure that you know your people's backgrounds. So when you're calling the bids, you can tell the story of why they're there, what their money is going to go for and why they should pledge more. So there you go. Fantastic. Again, amazing advice and we couldn't agree more. So Chuck, first of all, an enormous thank you for joining us. I'm sure that our audience are going to absolutely love this podcast and you and have learned so much around Southern Style Fundraising as well. But thank you, Chuck. Oh, my pleasure, Ben. It's been fun. Thank you. So to find out more about Chuck and his business, head over to blacktieauctions.biz. That's dot B-I-Z. Remember that Chuck and his team support all of North America where they're licensed, because we've talked about that today, and he can bring his Southern style to any upcoming event. We'd love to hear more about your thoughts, so feel free to email podcast at givig.com, and you can also make suggestions of future topics or guests you would love to hear on our show. Thanks again, and don't forget to hit subscribe or follow to listen and look out for our next episode. <laughs>